Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Hello and welcome to the Project Zion podcast. I'm your host, Carla Long, and I am back with you on Percolating on Faith a place where we talk about whatever we want to and you have to listen. <laughs> Thanks uh-huh. for listening. Uh, I'd like to introduce our wonderful guests. They're back again. I cannot believe they keep coming back, but they do. Maybe they're glutton for punishment. Charmaine and Tony Shavella smith welcome back. Thank you. We're glad to be here. We really are. It's our, fun. It's our gluttonous pleasure, Carla, to, to, to come back. Oh, goody. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that we can satisfy that one of the seven original sins for you. (laughs) (laughs) So sorry I brought that up. Today, we're going to be talking about the vision, the first vision from Joseph Smith Jr. And I have been calling this this whole time, I've been calling it the versions of the vision, because some people think there might just be one version of that first vision. But friends, let me tell you, there is way more than that. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, their differences, what that vision means to community of Christ. And I hope that we enjoy the conversation. So let's kind of jump into it. So first of all, how many versions of the vision are there? (laughs) Well, it's if you're talking about about full descriptions of the vision, there's really probably just three that capture the whole story. Um, and there's really only two of the, the, the five that we'll be looking at, or the, yeah, the six documents that we'll be referring to that are really Joseph's own telling kind of from beginning to end um, of this experience. There's, there are a few other places where parts of that vision were either dictated by Joseph or where he may have been interviewed or where he may have narrated part of it. Um, And then there's a couple that are other people telling Joseph's story. We assume having talked to him and maybe even checking it putting it, running it past him before they published something. So um, they aren't all his own, um, you know, uh, kind of from beginning to end, giving a narrative. That's what I was trying to say is it was not all narratives from him as to this experience. But it is so fascinating to see all of these changes, not necessarily, uh, I think more change of emphasis, um, as well as some details changing. So just fascinating. So we're kind of anxious to get into it. So the the documents like cover a 10 year period, they go from 1832 to 1842. And um, yeah, the, the, the differences of emphasis are remarkable, really. I think it's also important to say that that, you know, for ages and ages in the community of Christ, we always treated the vision as kind of the starting point of the movement. And more recently, historians have, have said, you know, actually, the, the the Book of Mormon and its publication was more like the founding of the, the movement. And a lot of church members didn't even know about the vision until, you know, until the late 1830s, uh, until, until it started being, you know, publicized a little bit more. So um, I think it's still fair to say it's a founding, it's a founding event, a root experience uh, of our movement. But the question then arises, well, which, which account is, you know, which, which one is the, is there one that is the root, uh, root experience of the movement? And what, what can we make of the fact that there are all these differences? Right. Them, so. And it also kind of gives us a little bit of, um, a look into Joseph's own psychology. Uh, You know, what's happening in Joseph as he's over time, as he's sharing these different things as well. So, and you said, did you say the first one was from 1832? Probably November of 1832. And when, and when was he supposedly had this event? It was like 1820, right? 20 ish. Depends because, because in the different accounts, his age 
change. It could be in his 14th year, his 15th year, or his 16th year. So depending, um, yeah, on which of them that you're reading. So, And you know, Carla, that, that period of time from age 14 to almost 17, what do we, re- we remember? <laughs> I just remember being embarrassed most of the time. <laughs> there you go. Well, and depending, again, on which of them you uh, – focus on, there's very much this sense that he is, you know, a 16-year-old hormonally driven, like most 16-year-olds in whatever era. So um, there's a little sense of that there as well. Oh, no, I'm excited. Let's jump in. Let's hear him. This is good. (laughs) Maybe another place to that would be important to start is that for for ages and ages in Community of Christ tradition, we tended to, we, we sort of like revered what turns out to be the last account, right? The, 18, the final 1842 account, which is that big full one. And we used to publish a tract called Joseph Smith Tells His Own Story, which was that one. And there, there was always this sense, and I know when I became a, an active member of the church in the 1970s, there was this sense among lots of members that somehow nobody had had a vision since the biblical period, and that all of a sudden, Joseph has a vision and nobody believes him, but it's a real thing. Isn't and it amazing? Are, yeah, <laughs> that, that, that vision, visions and these kinds of experiences have been absent for, for literally millennia, which turns out to be untrue. Yeah. Right. So um, first of all, there's a, a, a deep just ignorance of medieval theology there and the, the, the importance for certainly the mystical tradition of visionary experiences. But also what's what I think is so cool is that Historians increasingly are able to set any of these different accounts that just that we get, you know, out of Joseph's experience in a context in which lots of revivalist figures were having visionary experiences and conversion experiences that included seeing things and and you know hearing things and and so on. And so uh, instead of the instead of seeing Joseph's vision as uh, the Latin phrase would be sui generis, you know, of its own kind. It, 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 like a, a one a and only, uh, yeah, a, a totally unique uh, one-off incident. No, it's not. It's very, very much part of the landscape, especially the Second Great Awakening that our movement comes out of. So I think that's that's quite important too. Uh, and we we know we we can we can learn from we can learn a lot about our origins by by seeing Joseph's initial experience, whatever it was, as like other experiences and not unlike them. That's really helpful and probably really important for people to, you know, I think part of us, we probably know that in our head, but you know, there's sometimes that mystical stuff that comes up and you're just like, I want to believe this to be true. So I do, you know, but, yeah. but then like the practical side of you, which I have very little, the practical side of me is basically squelched. Um, the practical side of me comes out and says, come on, Carla, <laughs> come on. Well, yeah. And I think the, the whole idea that the the mystical um, has been interpreted and embraced in different ways in different eras, and so in the in Joseph's time in the eighteen twenties and thirties, um, and and before that to some extent, the the mystical experiences, the felt presence of the spirit, those kinds of things, really carried a lot of weight. And, and I think they still do today, but probably in a different way. And so, but that was the, um, the commerce in religious, in, in religious life was to have these kinds of experiences as, as a validating um, sense that this was really of God. And so they used the templates of their time to describe their experience, um, you know, what were the what were the essential pieces that made this a conversion experience, for instance, or a revelatory experience of some kind? So, whereas today we would use our own templates on on spiritual experiences, where we would would talk today, we might use language about feeling a, a peace or having uh, being able to let go of worry or to, to find uh, freedom to express ourselves in, uh, you know, in speaking or in, in writing as ways in which the spirit is moving. So, or this, or touching us in nature, you know, that's another one that is today as well. So anyhow, uh, it's just fascinating. 
It is. Are we ready to jump in? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So we'll just start. And and what we're using as a reference is an article uh, that was first written by Dick Howard, uh, who is the church historian back then. back then, and in a book called Restoration Studies 1, and it's simply called oh, An Analysis of Six Contemporary Accounts Touching Joseph's, Joseph Smith's First Vision by Richard P. Howard. So he's the one who pulled those together and did some analysis. Um, and it's also, uh, there's in it's also in Journey Mark, of the People. Mark yeah. Shear's uh, book, m- most recent uh, church historian, his, uh, it's in his book too. And it lays out the, some of the similarities and differences between these varying accounts. Mark's book has a very helpful table in it in which he goes through each each version and then you know what's the list, content? List, who, who's on first? Who's on second? Who's on third? If you want to use that, what's happening? What's what's the content? What's the what's the theme and so on? And it's it's like helpful as a as a an overview of the differences among them. Dick's Dick's article though was like the the groundbreaker in our church back in 1980. Mm-hmm. I, I think most church people did not even know that there was more than one account. Uh, before Dick's article was published. so And I wanted to, to let you know about both of those so that if you're wanting to pursue this some more, that you can go and see all of those laid out and then some of the analysis that both of these authors do in regard to that uh, historically. So so the very first um, of the the versions, we have saying earlier, we need to be careful how we're saying this. The <laughs> versions of, of the vision, not virgins of the vision, no. versions of the vision. <laughs> there you go. So uh, the first one was written in probably November of, of 1832. Um, and it was written by Joseph. And what we have here is the remembrance of an experience when Joseph was about 16 years old. And it and in this one, it tells a little about what's been happening since he's been 12. And get a little of his of the the religious context of the day and how there's arguing between different denominations. Well no, actually there's some of that, but but what's mm-hmm. most important here is that there's all of these preachers who have helped him to become aware of his sinful nature. And his and his need for forgiveness, and he's become—I don't know if he uses the term, but I think convicted of his sinfulness. And um, if he's a sixteen-year-old, yeah, there's lots, <laughs> you know, that's going through his mind. I'm sure that need a little forgiving. So, uh, <laughs> so he's a sixteen-year-old, and he is very aware of. Um, how he is he is not pure and and sinless and that everybody around him is it's, it's like also a sense of everybody everybody's fallen away everybody's right. sinful I'm, and the world yeah. is a mess yeah. the world is a mess amen joseph amen. <laughs> <laughs> and so he he goes um in search of this he's he's wanting to pray about this he feels i think i would say driven to pray about this. There's a almost an anguish of soul. I it's I think a fair way to describe it. And he has this experience in the woods uh, as he's praying. And um, he is told, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven. And in this vision, he sees Christ, he sees the Lord. Um, who says I was crucified for mm-hmm. the world. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's kind of also a sense that, you know, yeah, the world is a mess and there's a, a this idea that there's God's anger is kindling and I come quickly. Those are some of the things that um, he hears Christ saying. So, uh, if you were to characterize this, you would characterize this one, I think, as primarily a conversion experience, a personal sense of being seen, um, loved, and forgiven by God. So this is the, that's the, 
the extent of the first one with a sense that the whole world is messed up and uh, it's not the way God would like it to be, but, but it's pretty general. And again, it was only Christ, just Christ showed right. up. Right. Okay. One, one, one figure identified as Christ. And mm-hmm. uh, it's very interesting. This, this one, if you start reading conversion stories from this period, this sounds remarkably like them. So I, I've got one in front of me. This is from Lorenzo Dow. Lorenzo Dow, who was a, a very fiery uh, preacher who kind of cultivated an, an Elijah, John the Baptist-like image. But this is, this is Lorenzo Dow's conversion experience, just words from it. He says, he, he put his hands together, cried in my heart, Lord, I give up, I submit, I yield. Uh, if, he's, he's struggling over his own sin and this, if there's enough mercy to cover it. And he says, as uh, as these words flowed from my heart, I saw the mediator, Christ, step in, as it were, between the Father's justice and my soul. Mm. And these words were applied to my mind with great power. Son, thy sins, which are many, are forgiven thee. Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. The burden of sin and guilt and the fear of hell vanished from my mind as perceptibly as an hundred pound weight falling from a man's shoulder. My soul flowed out in love to God, to his ways and to his people Yea, and to all mankind. So these uh, these second great awakening conversion stories, there's a there's a crisis, right? They, they kind of follow a pattern. There's a you, you've been pondering your life and you, you realize you just feel like, you know, you, judged against this extreme bar of divine justice. You fail, 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 fail. And you feel like you're being you're going to fall down into the pit. And in some sense, uh, Christ steps in. In this case, Lorenzo Dow sees, more or less, sees Christ step in between. In the same here, Christ appears to, to Joseph in the woods, and the result is forgiveness and a kind of a fresh start. So the classic conversion experience. In fact, I'll go ahead and, and read this part of it uh, from Joseph's first writing down of, of this experience. Um. I cried unto the Lord for mercy, for there was none else to whom I could go, and to obtain mercy, and the Lord heard my cry in the wilderness. And while in the attitude of calling upon the Lord in the sixteenth year of my age, a pillar of light above the brightness of the sun at noonday came down from above and rested upon me, and I was filled with the Spirit of God. And the Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord, and he spake unto me, saying, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way, walk in my statues, keep my commandments. Behold, I am the Lord of glory. I was crucified for the world that all those who believe on my name may have eternal life. Behold, the world lieth in sin at this time, and none doeth good. And he goes on to to talk about what a mess the world is in. Um, So, yeah. And then towards the end of this one, he, he says, yeah, but then after a while, I kind of fell back into my... Sinful nature. Sinful ways, you know. I, <laughs> well, it's hard to change. <laughs> it's 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 well, very it's sixteen. <laughs> Goodness gracious! I mean, let's, let's be realistic. Even if Jesus Christ comes, it's really hard to not do the things that are fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to me that the earliest account and the latest account, which are really very different in terms of content and and their emphasis, they both have this re- have a reference to Joseph's. We'll call it his backsliding after the experience. Yes, you know. his, his so, humanness. Yeah. So, which but, is re- refreshing. But I, it I, is because he's not normally what people call a humble person, like normally. <laughs> so that's kind of actually good to hear. Right. Yeah. 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 In fact, in this one, um, yeah, yeah. Here's here's the part the part that Tony was just referring to. Uh, I pondered these things in my heart, but after many days, I fell into transgression and sinned in many ways which brought a wound upon my soul. And there were many things which transpired that cannot be written, blah, 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 blah. So oh, I wish he would have though. If yes. only he would have. <laughs> uh, that might've been a whole, whole other set of journals. Yes. Yeah, so that, that's going to be for later <laughs> critical historians to tell us about all that. So, <laughs> that's true. but you know, I, this, the, the, the image here in this, in this account of this sense of like divine judgment it, it is impending it's part of the, the millennialism of the period right. too, that, that we're, 
or we must be coming to the end of the age. Things are changing rapidly and getting so bad, and it must be that judgment is right at the doorstep. And so that that certainly comes out in this first account. And that was part of the whole, the Protestant preaching of the day. It's, it's the part of the bigger context. Yeah. So it would be very natural that it would come up. So the second then, uh, the second document that gets pulled into this uh, discussion it was probably from around 34, 35, it was written by Oliver Cowdery. Um, it was in the Latter-day Saint Messenger and Advocate, uh, which was a pretty new publication at the time. This was uh, volume one, number three. So this would have been very early on in the writing of the Latter-day Saint Messenger and Advocate. And it appears that this is Oliver writing in con while conferring with Joseph. And this one um, is really doesn't go much into the actual experience, but just a little bit of the, um, the context. And this one, the piece that's um, in both of these works, it's just short. And it describes Joseph as being about 15 years old and that he's been, he's kind of caught in the arguments between the different Protestant denominations. Lots of focus on their arguments back and forth. Um, and they're saying these things, but it becomes apparent to young Joseph that the people who are saying these things aren't very pure either, and that they're, they're being quite hypocritical about the things they're saying and not doing. Um, and there's a very strong emphasis here that they don't have absolute answers. Like he's asking different ministers questions and they, some of them are saying, I don't know. And he's taking that as the fact that their faith is incomplete so that they should know absolutely. <laughs> and so, but again, a youth often figures, hey, I've been reading the Bible. This is clear to me. How can it not be clear to other people that this is how it should be? And if clerics are saying, I don't know, then obviously they're not as close to God as, as he thinks they're saying they are. So, but there's this, this strong emphasis on um, his disillusionment with the fact that they don't have absolute answers. They don't know absolutely uh, what God thinks about certain things or what's the right way to do things. So um, something to keep your eye on then from this point on, if I can just yeah, toss this yeah, in. I was just going to toss one more thing. Oh yeah, go ahead. And go the ahead. other one was because of these things, he was hesitant to commit to any of the denominations. So that's just a piece of the context um, that is part of this writing. Okay. So I was going to say is that these, these accounts, you have to, you have to track them as the church develops because they reflect mm -hmm. the ongoing development of the church. Right. right? That one that we just did, the first one, is in some respects, it's the most uh, uncolored by the church's development. It's 1832, right? This one, 1834, from 1834 on, the, 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 the focus increasingly becomes on how other churches are messed up. And the focus then begins moving away from Joseph's own personal experience of separation from God and restoration to God. It, it moves away from that to how all the other churches are wrong. And increasingly it will go that direction. And also, you know, as, as I read these, as we, you know, Charmaine and I read them aloud to each other today, which, I mean, what else are we <laughs> going to do today, right? <laughs> That's our idea. I do that every day. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, as you, as you listen to them, when I, when I listen to them, I'm thinking of the theological context and the assumptions of the theological setting in which these come out. And one of the assumptions that is, is it's an unfortunate theological assumption, assumption in this period is that Christianity can only be one thing, right? If it's, if it's true, it must be one thing and it can't be other things. The idea that there are multiple takes on the same revelatory center is just not even it's not even on anybody's framework yet. And I can't, I don't want to uh, take my postmodern view and try to thrust it back on them. But what my postmodern view allows me to see is the, the limitations within their perspective on what truth is. Tr truth can only be this one thing. And so if you don't have absolute truth and absolute certainty about your sets of doctrines, then you're, you can't be right with God, which is, to me, it feels very unfortunate. Yeah. But 
but in their setting, that's how they related to these things. So, sure. I just want to ask a really quick question. Um, so it was in this version that where he talked about how all the other churches were wrong. That really wasn't in the first one. Cause that was, that's been right. part of my history, my personal mm-hmm. like church history with the world. Like every other church in the world is wrong. Right. You have to make the right church. And it was this version that Oliver Cowdery's 1834. And actually it's not even, um, it's not even that strong to say that they are all wrong. It's just saying, it's describing how he's struggling with the fact that what they're saying doesn't necessarily meet their actions or they don't have absolute answers. So it doesn't even say yet at this point that they're wrong. So the first, you're seeing the progression. That first one is like, yeah, the world is messed up and and God wants to write things eventually. Um, And then now we're getting into, you know, he really want to emphasize this this context of these uh, other churches being led by hypocrites and it's starting to feel like a funnel. Yes, 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 exactly. Yeah. It's from this one, the the trajectory of what the vision is about goes in a different direction. Yeah. Right. This, this is heading in that direction of all churches are wrong. But so the the next one is actually kind of interesting. And this is, this is written um, probably in about 1835. And so probably just after the one from Oliver Cowdery in that same time period. This is written by Warren Cowdery. um, And it's narrated by Joseph in a conversation with Joshua, the Jewish minister. And how Joseph describes this um, is that he's about 14 years old. And this is really interesting because what he focuses on this time is that his main concern is for right knowledge, for the right answers, um, the right beliefs. And it's not about sin. There's not any reference here to him being concerned about his, his personal eternal welfare, um, but that he needed to have the right knowledge. He needed to know the right things. Um, and it's, and he, you know, the quote is information is what I most desired at this time. So it's very much to a head thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, going from that, the first one where it's a heart thing and it's uh, this bat internal battle to now wanting the, to have the right knowledge, the right information. And in this one, uh, I think this is the only one that has it. Um, while he's trying to pray, he hears footsteps coming towards him. And he thinks it might just be someone in the woods at first, and then it seems to be coming nearer and nearer. And he finally jumps up and looks around, and there's there's no one there. Um, but there's almost this little bit of sense of, a, of dread. Um, and But then he is able to go back to praying and, and open up in prayer, and then again, there's instead of a light descending, there's a pillar of fire, and he feels joy. Um, and there's a personage that comes, and then there's another personage uh, who look alike. Or does, does this one say no, even I think they this look is the alike? One where the personages aren't identified, maybe, is it right? Like the first. I like the first. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Um, and then and it tells him his sins are forgiven. And that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So those were the things that he gained from that. Uh, there's not a lot there about um, about the churches, except that at the beginning he he wanted he was coming for the right knowledge, but he was told, "Thy sins are forgiven," and then Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Those were the two pieces that came into that in that conversation that he had. So you know, already we're seeing different emphasis and some different details coming through that. um, I mean, and it's interesting uh, if, if Joshua, the Jewish minister, you know, whether he's uh, a rabbi or maybe, I don't know if there were messianic uh, Christians in that time or not, but the, the light from above is now a pillar of fire. 
going back to Exodus, you know, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. So he's using language that might fit his hearer. Um, and this is, and now we have the two personages who look alike. The, the text is interesting, though, here in that the personages are not directly identified. It says mm-hmm. uh, a personage appeared in the midst of this pillar of flame, which was spread all around and yet nothing consumed. Another personage soon appeared like unto the first. He said unto me, my sins are forgiven thee. He testified also unto me that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Mm. So it's not it's not clear that this personage is God or Christ, but is testifying. And then the next thing he says is, I saw many angels in this vision. So it's they, so these might be yeah. angels who are testifying to these hmm. details. Yeah, I mean it's 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 quite different in that respect. Mm-hmm. He's not I directly identifying the the hmm. uh, personages with yeah. any person of the Trinity or anything like that. So so maybe he's starting to realize, get some emotional intelligence, be like, if I don't say what they are, people will imagine. <laughs> whatever is they yeah yeah, interesting. yeah they that's might really go interesting with it. it is yeah and and but again here we have some elements that are same um the light the sins are forgiven and an emphasis on jesus so uh, again that's 1835 so the next one is from 1840 and it's written by orson pratt who was writing a tract this is this is not a little trifold track. However, <laughs> this is a thirty-one page track uh, on on the church, and it's presumably um, based on B, the the bit by Oliver Cowdery with the thing about the his context of the churches fighting and uh, and conversation with Joseph. So it's it's presumed that that Orson chatted with Joseph before he published this. I would hope so. <laughs> well, we don't, we don't know these things for That's sure. That's true, but. Because they just were doing what they do. And, and so, yeah. So in this one, he's age 14 or 15. Um, his, he is seeking for correct understanding and he's needing assurance for his eternal well-being. Um, there's very much the sense that if I don't believe the right things, or if I'm not part of the right church, my eternal status is in danger. And that Joseph as this young person was not willing to, um, trust that the folks he was listening to could give him what he needed for eternal assurance. Um, very much though, looking for the one doctrine is what he was doing when he went into the woods to pray, uh, and to dis- and to determine which is the church of Christ. So among all of these churches, he was seeking to know which is the church of Christ. Uh, James 1, 5, uh, comes up as it does, or is referenced in, uh, several of these, um, which, which promises that, you know, if you ask, um, God will give you answers without, without upbraiding you, with, without uh, making you feel bad for asking, basically. And so, he, so um, he's saying, okay, nobody else can help me because I can't figure out what to do as far as which church. And so he figures this is his key to get direct answers about doctrine and which is the right church. And in this one, he's tempted by a power of darkness as he tries to pray, um, as he's pouring out his, his soul for answers. So there's a sense that this darkness comes, and then, again, the light descends. This time, it's very much more described as resting around the tops of the trees and then descending down. Uh, so it looks like things could be ablaze, but nothing is being consumed, and then it envelops Joseph and as it does, he has a heavenly vision. Um, and he sees two personages, both alike, that look alike. And, it, and there are three things that come in this one. The first is that his sins are forgiven. Uh, the second is that all denominations believe incorrectly. 
and to not go after any of them. And then a third that he will receive true doctrine in the future. Uh, it's not necessarily the sense that only he will or that he will be, you know, the one who will be sharing it with other people, but that in the future there will be, he will receive true doctrine. So the, the focus, it, again, is shifting. The focus is shifting to his role, right, to how he's seeing yeah. himself. Mm-hmm. And this is 1840, and so we're now in Nauvoo, and the church is highly developed. And it's now, you know, from my community of Christ perspective, it's now uh, beginning to derail theologically. But uh, the, the, the focus is quite, the focus is increasingly shifting to him and his role as the, quote, restorer. And we, we've gone from the kind of, from 1832, where the, the experiences, in many respects, it's relational. It, it's focused on the individual's relationship with God. And now it's, it's, it's uh, shifted to doctrinal, to ideas, to concepts, to, to what's the right way to set things up. Quite, quite different than from where we started. Oh, yeah. And how to keep my believers believing. You know, I, I'm sure that was always, I mean, I, I know I'm not one to criticize. Like, I'm not the leader or starter of a church. But I, I mean, I'm, I feel like Joseph had to continually make things exciting for people and be mm-hmm. like, this is, this is it. This is the truth. This, a pillar of fire came down, you know? Right. How, how right. can you not believe that? Yeah. So for kind of validating kind of ways of validating his, his leadership because of these special uh, experiences with God. And the funnel keeps going. Cause now yeah. we're hearing other churches are incorrect. So right. they are not right. to be joined or not to yeah. be trusted. Exactly. Yeah. So the next one is um, from 1842, and this one's written by Joseph to, um, it looks like to the editor um, of the Chicago, the uh, paper, the Chicago Democrat. Uh, so he's, John Wentworth, um, he's sending this letter to John Wentworth, who is looking for an article about um, the history of this emerging church. Uh, so he can send it to a Mr. Barstow who's doing a history of New Hampshire. So he's wanting an article, short, shortish article that he can then send on to um, Mr. Barstow. So it's quite condensed, the, the piece about Joseph's experience. Um, and so, but this was written by Joseph. He's 14 years old. He's confused by the claims of the different churches goes to the grove, he's enwrapped in a heavenly vision. He has two, sees two people, two images exactly alike. So this, they're exactly alike. Um, There's the whole light piece. And he's told basically two things. All denominations are incorrect, go after none of them. And then two, that the fullness of the gospel would be made known to him. So those were so the two things. Sins forgiven. Nothing. That's gone. Not, nothing in this one about his sins being forgiven. He's so perfect I, now, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, 42. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe to some. Maybe to some. So that's just kind of interesting that, you know, there's this further development the dropping away of the idea of uh, that personal experience with God or with Christ, much more about the denominational rightness of one or another um, and being told to not go after them. Mm-hmm. And then that whole idea of this, this phrase, which would become very important as the church moves from this point, um, and I think it was common, but I think this really uh, nailed it into the vocabulary is the fullness of the gospel yeah. was made known to him, uh, would be made known to him. Um, and that's, you know, when you think about that fullness of the gospel, that's saying a whole lot. Yeah. Um, it's the completeness, the wholeness, um, all of these kinds of pieces. So. Yeah, yeah. So if you if you if you're now comparing against the earliest one, so in the 1832 account, you could have that experience and legitimately 
become a Campbellite, a Presbyterian, a Methodist, a Baptist. But by now, you, you, whatever the experience was, it prohibits you from that. You, know, you can only, your, your funnel image is good. The funnel's getting tighter and tighter here. And now the experience is totally about the church and about Joseph himself. And that's, that's definitely going to come out in the final one, which is the longest, comprehensive, and it's the most uh, it's the most different from the earliest one, I would say, too. Yeah, and so this last one, I'm Tony, you can go ahead and do this one. This is 1842 as well, which is also the one that um, that he had the little piece in that he sent to John Wentworth. But, uh, but this time, he's writing for the Times and Seasons, which is uh, the main publication of the church at that point, and where he's promising to make this more comprehensive. And in fact, mm-hmm. it is several pages long. Um, and he begins here with um, there's conflict and competition during his 15th year. So that, that kind of gives him that leeway. Is it his, was he 15? Was he 16? You know, right in there somewhere. Uh, but there's this, this conflict and this competition among churches as he remembers back and um, how confusing that was and how it's after this initial time of harmony that people had had where, you know, the gospel had been preached in their area, you know, they've been preaching in the area, people were of one mind, more or less, and then they divided into these factions, and they were backbiting and competing and trying to get, uh, so, so he's... Baptists against Presbyterians, against, against Methodists, against right. Universalists, you know, it becomes a, you know, it becomes a giant, like, religious food fight. You know, sort of, <laughs> so. so this, this one is, this one is highly anti-denominations, right? It's very much the, the whole focus of it is the wrongness of other churches. Their creeds are an abomination to me. So They're the first time that language comes up, mm-hmm. sorry. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, uh, it's interesting because 1842, Joseph has written a creed, right, called the Epitome of Faith. But that's a topic for another time, I guess. But, um, and now the focus is exceedingly on him as the prophet, as the restorer. And his understanding of divinity now as separate personages, separate gods is coming out in this one. And so we've we've come a long, a long different way from Christ, from a, from a Christophany, from Christ appearing, I am the Lord of glory. I was crucified for the sins of the world. Go your way, your, your faith is made. You know, that's the first one. And now it's two two different beings who are alike in everything, but it's, it's quite different. But, um, and this one goes into significant detail then about how after the experience, when he's talking about it, uh, he becomes the object of ridicule uh, from Methodist and then subsequently persecution. Um, you know, a, a great difficulty with this particular account, in my view, is that um, you cannot now separate his description of the experience from what's actually happening in the church's life at the time, right? Yeah. So, um, and the focus on his role as the prophet and restorer is is quite heavy in this one. So, so I'll, I'll just go ahead and read this, mm-hmm, sure, yeah. the part about the, the vision itself. Um, After I had retired into the place where I had previously designed to go, having looked around me and finding myself alone, I kneeled down and began to offer up the desires of my heart to God. I had scarcely done so when immediately I was seized upon by some power which entirely overcome me and having such astonishing influence over me as, as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. Thick darkness gathered around me and it seemed to be to me for a time as if I were doomed to sudden destruction. But exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me out of the power of this enemy, which had seized upon me. And at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, not to an imaginary ruin, but to the power of some actual being from the unseen world who had such marvelous power as I'd never before felt in any being. Just at this moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head above the brightness of the sun which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared that I found myself delivered from the enemy, which held me bound. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages 
whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, this is my beloved son, hear him. Uh, the, uh, my object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right. Um, and I asked the personages which of all the sects was right. I'm just skipping through bits and pieces here. But at this, um, for at this time, it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong. <laughs> and this is new. Oh. Uh, and also asking which I should join. I was answered that I must join none of them, must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the person addressed me, um, who addressed me said that all of their creeds were an abomination in his sight. Again, first time that this has been said, um, that those professors were all corrupt. Um, they draw me near me with their lips, but their hearts are from far from me. Um, they teach doctrines and commandments of men. Um, he forbade me to join with any of them and many other things. He did. He say unto me, I cannot write at this time. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so, and, and there isn't anywhere here a sense that there, this was about forgiveness. This, right. this one doesn't have any of that. No, when you get to the, ver this is very long. When you get to the very end of it, yeah. he talks about how he later messed up and, and right. Uh, how he had this great feeling afterwards, but it, it didn't. Uh, yeah. When I came to my, yeah. When I came to myself, I found myself lying on my back, looking up into heaven. Um, and then he goes on to talk about how he uh, shared this with others and all the, all the problems that that caused. But I just want to be super, super clear though. Um, Maybe it's your lovely Canadian accent, Charmaine. But when you say which sex is right, you mean <laughs> S-E-C-T-S. I just want to be clear. I just want to be clear. <laughs> I just, I just want to be clear. Sect. Which sect is right? S S E C T S. S right. Right. Which was was a term that was used a lot in that time. Uh, sometimes more than the idea of denomination. Because there were so many small groups that weren't full-fledged denominations, but were little um, oh, yeah. beginnings of movements. Um, and so... Some of the revivalist preachers didn't even identify particularly them. with the denomination. But so, uh, yeah, it, it's just, there's, 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 something, there's something of a tragedy in this whole story, if I may put it that way. And that is that these these groups on the American frontier in the 1820s and 30s, no precious little Christian tradition. And what they know is the Protestant groups, they're all, all Protestant groups. They What they know is post-Reformation polemics against Catholicism, and then post-Reformation polemics against each individual Reformation church. And so they've inherited all that. And they, they, they have a theological conundrum. They've got this book called the Bible, which they all believe is kind of an oracle dropped from heaven. And yet in this democratized environment where you don't rely on tradition, but everybody's interpreting for himself and a few herself here too. There's a couple of women uh, revivalists in this whole period too. Everybody's ter interpreting for themselves and they're coming up with all kinds of different systems and you're stuck because you think, Christianity must be a single right system. And we know we already assume the book is right, but everybody's getting their system from the book. And so what do we do? It's, it's, it's really, it's really a, a, a tragic story in lots of ways. Yeah. Um, and so then whatever competition there was among denominations was over things that turn out to be nowadays in ecumenical circles, we'd see a lot of the things that they're fighting over is inconsequential. Right, They're, they have nothing really to do with the substance of the faith, which mode of baptism, or so on. You know, so that kind of stuff. But um, it's 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 so interesting when you read this last one to see that the focus, the the theme of the theme of darkness, increasingly becomes a way to say Satan was against the origins of this church. Right, the powers of darkness didn't want this to happen. But that itself is a sort of try, attempt to sort of validate Joseph well, and validate yeah, the his, community. By or, his power mm -hmm. and his will, 
but that that he keeps that away long enough until the light descends. Yeah. Yeah. So manipulation and and in some ways a little bit mm -hmm. like he's manipulating the the system. It's like Satan didn't want it to happen. So now look how, uh, look at us, look at how amazing we are, all that stuff. Right. Right. I mean, it's still used today. That whole idea that when bad things are happening to somebody who's doing something good, uh, it must be the evil one who is trying to stop it, which is just more evidence that this is really what God wants. So yeah. and the, the implication of that too, is that these other churches, which by this time are, you know, opposing stuff they're picking up in, out of the Mormon movement, um, that they're, they're in league with, with powers of evil too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, that's so right. true. So yeah. So that line has been drawn. You're yes. either on our side or the evil side, right? You're with yeah. us or you are against us, right? So. Yeah. When, when I was a sem- my last year of seminary, I took a class on um, psychology of religion taught by Donald Capps. Donald Capps was a really well-known um, person. In, in, he taught uh, pastoral theology, pastoral counseling, clin- um, uh, psychology of religion, and so on. Fascinating class, the psychology of yeah. religion. And, and I actually wrote a paper for him on, on the visions. And he said, oh, my gosh, this, these different accounts are a perfect illustration of what in the psychology of religion is called role-taking theory. That is, as Joseph increasingly takes the role of prophet, his story about the originating experience increasingly uh, tracks with the role he's taking, right? Interesting. So that's very, very interesting. Uh, Dr. Caps wanted me to turn that into a paper for publication, but I had other things on my mind at the time. So that was a long time ago. So <laughs> do you still have that paper? Oh, it's probably in boxes in Michigan somewhere. So oh, I'm it's guessing it's before computer. Yeah, it was, it was back Carla when we used to write papers by lamplight. Stone. We, we walked 10 yeah, miles that. uphill to, to borrow somebody's <laughs> lamp so we could write that paper with ink we had made, you know, ourselves. So That so. you squeeze from the squid. <laughs> <laughs> well, not in Michigan. We didn't have squids there. So we, didn't. <laughs> but we had poisonous uh, berries. We used the poisonous berries to make things. Uh, so. Well, you know what's really interesting about that? I just, this might not make any sense at all, but there's a meme going around on Facebook or whatever that says, describe a time in your life that shows exactly who you are now. And, and so people are like describing this, you know, something that happened in third grade that, and it it perfectly lines up to who they are now. And like, you can kind of take any narrative and make it into who you are now. If you really want to, I think I could be wrong about that, but it does seem like that's kind of comparable to what's happening here. And in a way it's like, take, what has happened before and move it into this place. That's really going to help you along. That's really going to de- describe who you are now. I'm a prophet. I talk to Jesus. I am the leader of a church. Jesus said, don't join any other church. I am the, so. Right. Like, right. And it, and it's increasingly creating what he was, was saying he most wanted, you know, back in that second or third one, which was absolute answers knowing that this is exactly what God says, what God wants. And he, you know, there's this striving for what he didn't see in some of the ministers when he was 16 year, years old, where some of them said, I don't know, uh, which I would say was an honest reply <laughs> and gave room for God to be God. But for him, it was disillusioning and, um, and showed lack of faith. And so he's almost caught in a way, I would say, by that desire or need to think that pure religion, if you're using those kinds of biblical terms, pure religion uh, means you know the exact, exactly what God wants or exactly how to live. And you will, you have the answers for everyone. Um, But, but then he kind of gets caught by that. Um, And um, so yeah, it's it's just interesting to see that. I I did a little contrast. You know, he goes from in, in this whole movement of these different versions. He goes from spiritual experience to absolute knowledge. 
And so that's from the beginning to the end. He goes from forgiveness of sins to being righter than others, wow. which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, he goes from knowledge of Christ and in the first one, this experience of seeing Christ, the one who was crucified for all the world, to focusing on being in the right church. And that the fullness of the gospel is yet to be received, which implies that Jesus is not the fullness of the gospel. Oh, of course. And I'd not thought about that until working on this today. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, my goodness. Yeah. There's an implication that the message about who Jesus is, is not enough. Wow. Yeah. That there's more that's needed. So, and that plays out, of course, um, in in further development of, of the theology of the early movement, um, where it's not, it, Jesus kind of gets left behind, actually, <laughs> as especially as more delving into the Old Testament and taking on vestiges of Old Testament thought as interpreted in their time, took them in all kinds of interesting places like multiple gods and Mm -hmm. plural marriages and things like that. Um, Jesus kind of gets left behind as not being enough of the fullness of the gospel. And I might have missed this. He also goes from, we're all messed up to you're all messed up. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. 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 And that, I mean, the, that last account had an unfortunately long time to shape community of Christ uh, identity. We, we treated it almost as a kind of sacred, like canonical text for, for way too long. And so and we don't anymore, in my, in my view, at least in our public theology, we don't look at it that way anymore. It, and instead, we, we tend to look at the, the first vision experience as that, that it illustrates a principle that's still val- valid in the church, which is seek, ask. Uh, God is loving and forgiving. Um, God, God yearns for us to be in relationship with God, no matter what we've done. Um, God can be encountered. God God can even be chatty with us at times too. And those are sort of principles that it illustrates. But the idea that somehow the last account describing other churches as wrong and Joseph as right, we don't, we just don't go there anymore. We, we have rejected that as the meaning of that experience, whatever the experience was. I, you know, and in some ways it's my, my last of these progressions kind of fits that well. And that is going from relationship with God to concerns about eternal destination. Yeah. To um, assuring others and self that that we have the right church. So, you know, I'm not sure if, I'm just thinking about the progression. Is, is there a need for this obsession about what our eternal destination is in order to, for does that lead us into this thinking that we have to have the right church here? Um, and, and where does it leave that beginning place, which is relationship with God? And, and I think in some ways in the church today, especially with our focus on spiritual formation and on Christ, um, we're kind of going back to that whole relationship with God piece mm-hmm. as being foundational but not just about me and my salvation, but the God of all, the, the God who was crucified for all of the world. And I would say all of creation. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, we've, we've backtracked through the having to have the right church, backtracked through the obsession with our eternal destination to um, who is this God? And um, what, what about this God is inviting us to, to reveal who we are, to reveal our, our anguish, our uncertainty, our need to be assured that we have worth and are forgivable and are loved. I love uh, that. 
I love that. I love that idea that, you know, we, it, we come back to relationship. It's always about relationship. And like you're talking about the salvation, it's a horizontal salvation. It's not a vertical salvation. It's never been a vertical salvation. It's a horizontal one for all of us, not just mm-hmm. for me. I, I think that that is, ex- ah, I love that. Uh, sorry. Uh, just, <laughs> I do. Good. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I, I hope that that's where we can end up, you know, in the spiritual formation that we've been practicing in community Christ for the last however long. Yeah. Wow. You know, yeah. You know our, our, our community of Christ temple has a bunch of vision symbolism in it. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to heighten the use of the word symbol here. So the Joseph's experience, 1820, whenever it was, has become a symbol for us. It's not a rule. It's not a law. It's not canon. It's a symbol. In other words, it's a symbol that points us into the infinite that God is. And so in our, in our temple, when you, when you walk into the foyer, Mm-hmm. The the entrance to the to the sanctuary is that etched glass of the sacred grove, and then when you look through the door, what you see there is uh, a a piece of art that symbolizes the burning bush, right? And so for us, Joseph's vision is a symbol of divine human encounter. And then as you start up the worshipers path, the first thing you see is that beautiful etched piece of the the prodigal child with the loving father. And how fitting is that? Because the, the, the earliest account was about the prodigal child experiencing forgiveness. And then as you, as you walk further up the path, the next thing you encounter is the cross. And so in, lo- in lots of ways, um, the first four things you encounter as you walk into our, our temple uh, are connected to the symbolism of the earliest account of the vision. I think that's really quite quite uh, important for us to keep in mind. So I have another one actually too. So even before you go up the worshiper's path, when you come in to your left where the little chapel is, there's a great big cross that's made out of pieces of wood from all over the world. Mm -hmm. And it juxtaposes what used to be our approach, which was that our focus was on Joseph's experience in the woods to taking woods from all over the earth, they, they point to who Jesus is, yeah. not to who we are. Yeah. And that's I just, beautiful. I never thought about that before. So that's kind of cool. <laughs> so, I mean, so obviously this, this early experience of Joseph is still provocative for us today, but we cannot let the, a partic- that, that last account in particular become the determinator of meaning. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have to understand it as a, an evolving, you know, an evolving account connected to that particular part of, of his life and journey. And that we have, be, be, because the bush is still burning, we have moved on from there. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and just to be honest, if I were going to write about something that happened to me 20 years ago, I'd make myself look good too. I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is, this is the, this is how we tell our stories. You know, like you were talking about earlier, there's, there's experiences in our lives that at the time were just life. And later on we say, Oh my, that, that planted something in me that um, lit a fire in me, led me in a certain direction. I would not have otherwise gone and look how it has shaped, you know, what I am now. Um, Though at the time you could never have guessed that. And so we, we all reinterpret our experience in the moment in which we are now. And during the pandemic of 2020, I never knew that I had become the so-and-so and whatever I'm going right, to become later. Right. 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 The yeah. best podcaster in the world. <laughs> or have, have the best sourdough starter that anyone's ever tasted. That would actually be bigger than the best podcaster in the world. for sure. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation to tell you the truth. I was not very excited about this conversation (laughs) because like Joseph Smith always kind of, I I feel iffy about Joseph Smith, to be honest. Like I, I, I have a hard, difficult time with him. He and I fight a lot. And (laughs) so, so talking about the versions of the vision did not thrill me at all, but now I can see, uh, like, it helps me to see that it was, it was a progression 
Mm-hmm. Um, it was Joseph's progression. It was the church's progression. And Charmaine, I really loved what you had to say about going back to that beginning, that first one and having it be about relationship, which is what community of Christ is. We are a relationship church. And if that's all that we can do, then we've done enough. If we can help people have a relationship with themselves, each other, and God, we're good to go. That's an amazing calling to have. And, um, you know, the spirit has been equipping us for that, um, both in ways of humbling um, which is not always the most comfortable thing, um, but also in ways of, of showing us what restores us, what gives us energy, what, um, what helps us see God at work in our words, actions, and our own vision is to see people connecting with the world around them, with their own life and with yeah. God with God, with Christ, with the spirit. And that's a pretty amazing thing. Um, yeah. And I think we've, for a long time, we took that for granted as, oh yeah, yeah. Relationship with God. We pray or we have experiences or yeah. whatever. It's fine. And, right. <laughs> it's good. It's essential. Everybody's got it. Well, now we're saying, well, no, actually it's deep and rich and it is the source of meaningful life so yeah well thank you so much tony do you have anything to add before we head on out nope just what she said (laughs) great well thank you so much this has been a wonderful conversation i so appreciate it and thanks again you guys are great thank you thank you Bye. bye bye Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.